0: okay
1: um tonight I want, I thought we'd start the night a little different um, if you've seen what's happening in Israel and obviously we prayed about it on Sunday I thought it'd be appropriate tonight uh just to go before the Lord in prayer um, and and uh, yeah and just I think God is on the move over there there's a lot of stuff happening um, but I think it's just important that we pray so let's, let's bow our heads, let's pray. Lord, you said, peace be still. And the storm was uh, stilled. And we confess that at times we feel overwhelmed by the storm. But today we lift our eyes to you, the maker of heaven and earth, and we ask for a miracle. Let your peace fill Israel and Gaza. God, let violence cease in the region. Let there be no more bloodshed. We know that your heart breaks for those killed and those left behind. For the orphaned child, the injured elderly, those abducted, and families desperate for safety. So Lord, speak into this crisis. God, we pray for your presence and reconciliation to overcome conflict. We ask that you give wisdom and discernment to our global leaders and those in positions of power who have the ability to impact the course of this war. Help us to be bold advocates and agents of peace in our own communities. Lord, we raise Israel and Gaza to you and pray for those suffering. We ask that you provide peace in the crisis and protection and comfort for all those who have been impacted. God, we lift our prayer to you, that you hear us tonight. And God, as we dive into this study, Jesus, as we meditate on the good news of your kingdom, make us courageous and loving witnesses to your goodness. Empower us afresh to the gift of your spirit. Amen. 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 God is good. Amen. And he has the power to change anything and everything. And so um, tonight, though, we're going to we're going to dive right in. So if you guys would stand, we'll read the word. Does anybody want to read tonight? Anybody feeling like, let me do this thing. You want to read? All right. So we're going to be uh, Ephesians three fourteen through 21. I think that's right, yeah. 14 through the end of. So whenever you are ready. 14. Yep, through 21. For 20.
0: 21, yeah. When I think of all this, I fall on my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious and limited resources he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make him his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power, and work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask for him. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus,
1: through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys may be seated. So I'm just going to ask, before we really dive into the study, when if you read this verse before tonight, or even as we were reading, what did you find interesting? What really stuck out to you in these verses? He will
0: make his home in
1: your hearts as you trust him. Yeah, yeah. As we trust, right, um, when we accept Jesus and he comes into our hearts, right, into our lives um, and makes home there, right? No more is the temple that used to be where God would dwell. And we'll get into this in a little bit, but um, now that, that when Jesus came and he left, he said, it's to your advantage that I'm going because I'm going to leave a helper. Um, and so when Jesus went, left, he sent the Holy Spirit to then dwell when we confess and believe in our hearts that He is Lord, then the Holy Spirit enters in and, and has its dwelling place. So, yeah, what else?
0: I like following up on what Penny said. Um, after He, he makes His home in your hearts and you trust Him, your roots will grow down mm-hmm. into God's love and keep you strong. Like, that's a beautiful image.
1: Yeah. Beautiful picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I'm not going to talk too much right now because I'm going to get into all this here in a second. <laughs> so I just want to hear from you guys before we really dive into it. anything else that you guys find. Yeah. I like the fact that even though what we think and what we ask, that he's going to be doing more, fundamentally mm. more than what we
0: could ever imagine that he's capable
1: of doing. Isn't that great? Can, I love that because there's sometimes I'm like, God, mm, there's that small doubt sometimes you get in our head of like, God, I know you can do it, but would you? Like, could you really? Um, And so I love that that Paul just reiterates that, yes, God can do so much more beyond anything that you could fathom or anything that you could think. Um, I love that. Anything else?
0: Anyone else have that song in their head deep and wide? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: Yes. Okay, so anything else before I dive in? I never thought
0: about the the praying on your knees thing, I mm-hmm. just thought that was something church made up. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna, <laughs> and we're gonna get there are there are a lot of traditions. Yeah, it yeah. <laughs>
1: um, so, so finally, right, we have arrived at the end of the first half of Ephesians. Verses fourteen through twenty-one um, is the prayer that brings it all together. It's echoing the prayer that actually takes place in chapter 1. It is a prayer to the Father. The fatherhood of God is so important through Ephesians. And Paul, again, is praying that his friends would be strengthened with power in the inner person. This is what we call new temple language. Right here, this is the new temple language that, that we just talked about a little bit ago, that the Holy Spirit now dwells in the believer. Right? In the old temple, God's spirit, and God's presence would be in the Old Temple, right, um, in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, under the Messianic Covenant, under the fact that Jesus died, um, we, we become the temple for his presence to dwell, for his spirit to dwell in. So it's what we call new temple language, that God dwells in our hearts by faith, and we have become a temple for the Spirit of God. So uh, this is the, Paul talks about this transformation. It's being filled with the fullness of God, knowing the love of the Messiah, even though it passes all knowledge. We're going to dive into this just a little bit, but there's something cool that happens throughout these chapters, that Paul, when he writes this, always links something back to a previous writing. So we're going to dive into this, and I'm going to have a bunch of you guys just read tonight and see something cool that that Paul does um, that maybe some other writers don't do as much, but he Almost like quotes himself, really, um, a lot of times. And so uh, we're going to just go verse by verse, just a super breakdown tonight. So 14 through 15, I'm going to give you the overview. Paul is praying to the Father of all of the children of God. So he says, So both heavenly, which is the loyal cosmic forces that have not rebelled, right? And then the earthly, which is the tribes of humanity um, unified in Messiah. So he's praying all of those. Um, that, are, that are in heaven, and then all of those who are on earth, he's praying to the Father of, of all creation, is pretty much what's happening here. So everything that God has created, he's saying, we're praying to that Father, right? Which is crazy, because it's distinct from some of like, the Roman gods and things, how they would have a God that would be over just a certain aspect of life, right? No, when Paul writes, he's saying, I'm praying to the God who's over all over all of creation, right? And so, and then he links, he starts to link stuff back to previous chapters. And the linkage is this, that the united heaven and earth and all its human and spiritual inhabitants derive from the creator of all. So if someone would read um, back in Ephesians 1, verses 10 through 11. Anybody want to read that? Yeah. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together
0: under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united in Christ, or with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for He chose us in advance, and He makes everything work out according to His plan.
1: Yeah, right, so Paul already in, in verses and um, three fourteen, he says, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. He says the same, almost the same thing in Ephesians 1. That God is the creator of all and everything that is created is under his rule. And he's bringing things back to that place. Right? From the fall, God starts to, this plan to bring things back under the rulership of his creation. Of who he is and that and then he becomes flesh and and things and so this is the link right Paul does this multiple times and so in verse 314 he says when I think of all of this the basis of Paul's prayer was his knowledge of God's purpose it means that Paul prayed according to God's will and so I want to challenge you we can't effectively Pray effectively if we don't have insight into God's purpose and his will. Right? What is God's purpose and his will? Well, it's that we would be restored back into the family and that we would go and make disciples. Right? And People ask all the time, well, what is God's will for my life? Well, his first will is what? The great com- commandment, one, right? to love God and to love others, and then it's to go into the world. I think so many times people get wrapped up in this idea, well, God's got to have this like perfect plan for me that I, I need to, he's got to show me where I'm going to work. He's got to show me these things or I'm not going to move. But that's not always his intention, right? is isn't, sometimes I think it's okay. In ministry school, we learned that a lot of doors can be open to you and it's okay to step into any one of them. And if it's not the right, then you stop, right? Like when Paul would travel to different communities, he talks a couple times about we were going to this city but something didn't work there, so we just kept on going. Right? It's the same thing sometimes in life that we're called to go out and, and preach the gospel, the good news to others, to make disciples. And so that's the will of God and the purpose for us as, as his creation, to love him and to spread his good news. And to know that God, what God loves, and to hate what God hates. Right? How many of us pray Every day, God, would you help me love you, love what you love and hate what you hate? And I, it, it's crazy sometimes the things that God opens your eyes to see that maybe you've become desensitized to that you didn't even realize that, oh, God doesn't like that, right? But he loves this, right? He loves justice, he loves mercy, but he hates um, you know, all of these different things. He hates sin, right? And, and so to pray that prayer, God Help me love what you love. Help me hate what you hate. Such a powerful prayer. I I would encourage you um, as you're going throughout your weeks to to start to pray that and just see maybe God's going to start showing you things that, you know what? I don't really like this aspect. And maybe it's not even in your own life, but just things that are happening in the world even. To start showing you to be more um, empathetic towards those things. And to know that... uh, his will is to see those around us saved and brought into the family. It right? always as an opportunity. You're going to cross, you cross so many people every day. And I'm always challenged at the end of the day, did I give anybody the message of hope today? Or did I just walk on, you know? And it's, it gets so easy just to move on and say, oh, I'm too busy. I'm too busy, or to do, to talk to somebody at Walmart, or whatever. Sometimes, man, those people at Walmart or wherever, they may, you may be the only Jesus they they meet, right? the only Jesus they see throughout maybe that day. And so, it's important to take that time, the will of God, right, to to go and 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 um, and do His purpose and His will. So then he goes on. He says, "I fall to my knees." Paul prayed in the posture of being on his knees, and this position is of utmost humility. That's why people pray on their knees. It's of utmost humility. It was actually in contrast to the more normal posture of prayer in that culture, which was to pray standing with their hands raised up. That was the norm of the culture. So I'm gonna ask a question, what do you think the norm of our culture is when people pray? Like you ever thought about that? Like what what's normal? What's the normal posture when people pray? Head down. Head down. Yeah, head down. That's usually what most people do. Um, and it's always sometimes weird to me when I see someone do something else. And I'm like, <laughs> hold up. That's that's not the normal posture. You know, and that's and maybe that's kind of uh, you know, Paul, that's what he did. He fell to his knees in this in this sign of utmost humility and so the humility came when he considered god's great eternal plan that and, and his place in that plan and how god's work get this god's work is unstoppable even when paul was imprisoned god's work is unstoppable even when we're in prison right god's work like if something was to happen to one of us god's work would continue right it's unstoppable Right? No matter if somebody took over the world and said death to all Christians, God's work is still unstoppable. There's nobody, there's nothing that can that outmatch the creator of the universe. God's work will always continue. Right? And I've always thought about this because what if happens, I say, if the American church has to go underground, God's work is still gonna continue because there's nothing that can stop what God has already started. Solomon. King Solomon prayed on his knees. Ezra prayed on his knees. The psalmist called us, uh, calls us to kneel, uh, called us to kneel in Psalm 95, 6, where he said, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And most importantly, Jesus prayed on his knees. Right? Jesus prayed on his knees. And I love that, right? It, Jesus is our great example of how we should live our lives. And so if there's nothing else, like no other reason to pray on our knees except the fact that Jesus did it. Right? That Jesus prayed on our knees. So, and then verse 315, he says, the creator. Paul directed his prayer to the father who is presented as the planner, right? That's what the creator really means, the planner, Um, Among the members of the Trinity in the Bible and how we pray prayer is usually directed to the father through the son By the empowering and direction of the Holy Spirit So when we pray we we usually pray to the father through the son by empowering um, And direction of the Holy Spirit Right think about this when Jesus prayed who did he pray to the father? And Jesus is our example of how we should pray. It's to pray to the now Not that there's like, if you say you start your prayer with Jesus, not that that's heretical, because we know that God is three in one. But at the same time, the example is that we pray to the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, God the Father. Uh, I could get into the Trinity, but we'd really be here all night. So I won't do that. Of oh, um, And so he prays to the Creator. And then of everything in heaven and on earth. Charles Spurgeon, and if you have time, I would highly encourage you to listen to this message. He preached an amazing sermon um, on this verse. And the sermon was titled, Saints in Heaven and Earth One Family. I think that's the whole title. I hope I got all of it. Saints in heaven and on and earth one family. And in it, he developed the idea that we are one with our brothers and sisters in heaven and how this enriches our hope of heaven, right? That we are one, that God is, in fact, the creator of all. And if he is the creator of all, then those who have gone before us, um, there's this idea that we are one with our brothers in heaven, right? That we are, they are as, you know, in the family of God, just as we are. Right. And I don't want to get into all of like the, what happens when we die and all that, because we could really—there's so many different ideas. Um, and so we, we won't go there tonight. Um, but I love this. He developed this idea that we are one with our brothers and sisters in heaven, and how this are, enriches our hope for heaven. I always tell people, uh, when, we, when we pray, Jesus come back, right? That should be in our prayer. Jesus, come back. Because I don't know if you've looked around in the world, but that's like my prayer all the time. Jesus, go ahead. And just come on back, right? Because it's, it's definitely time. Um, and so we pray that. I, so many people, I feel like, sometimes long for heaven and and don't long necessarily for the return, right? So many people are like, well, I'm just, you know. And I, I say this, you know, my grandpa... He, when he got to the end of his life, he said, you know, I'm just ready to go be with the Lord. And I always thought about that because his his mindset was, I'm ready to go meet Jesus. But our mindset should be, Jesus, I'm ready to meet you here. I'm ready for you to come home, right? To come back, now that he's home, but to come back and and change what's happening. And um, we won't get into the rapture. We can can be there all night, too. So um, Paul is remembering that all of God's family is called after his name. Remember that Paul takes this theme of unity and runs with it. And almost every letter that he writes, unity is somewhere in the theme. Paul was very big on on Christians being united, which would make sense, right? Because if you go back when I taught about Paul and his character, that you remember that Paul was once Saul, was very much about breaking the church apart and so it's only natural for him when he gets the, the change to say, actually, I'm more for the church being unified more than ever because I know the persecution part. So that's, that's 14 um, and 15, kind of more of an in-depth. So 16 and 17, Paul's first request is two-part. One, that God would give power to enable an inner transformation to be strengthened by the spirit deep inside. So that the and then part 2 is so that the Messiah could take up temple residence in their communal hearts as they learn to love and serve one another. So this is this is if you had an overview of those two verses this is what he's talking about that God would give us power to enable an inner transformation to be strengthened by the spirit deep inside and then that the Messiah could take up that residence within us as we learn to love and to serve one another. And so, verse 16 links back to previous chapters. Here we go again with the linkage, right? God's generosity, his power, and grace are drawn from an infinite storehouse of riches. So, verse 1-6, would somebody read that for me? Yes, we praise God for his glorious grace he's poured out on us. And here in verse 16, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with the inner strength um, through his spirit. Then Christ will make your his home in your roots as you trust in him and um, in your hearts as you trust in him, your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong. That God's generosity His power and grace are drawn from an infinite storehouse of riches, meaning that God's grace never ends, right? There's no ending to it, thankfully, right? Because could you imagine if one day you sinned one more time and God said, oh, my grace ran out yesterday, right? But that's not the God that we serve. God's grace continues and goes on and on. Not that as Paul says in Romans 6, that we should go on sinning so that grace may abound, right? He says, by no means. So it's not that it's not that we can cheat. I call that cheap grace. It's where we say, okay, God, I know that you have an infinite storehouse, right? That grace will continue to come. It's not so that we can say, okay, well, God, if your grace is coming anyway, like, I'm gonna keep on doing what I'm gonna do, All right? That's not what Paul is saying here. But he's saying is that God, out of his generosity, continues to pour out his grace and his love, and, and he draws from an infinite source, which is in himself. And then verse 16b, the spirit takes up a residence, This is the kind of link back. The spirit takes up a resident in the corporate life of his people to give them power. Can someone read verse 117 for me?
0: May give
1: you, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of Him. Yeah, right. he's asking for the spirit to come and give the spirit of wisdom and revelation of, of who He is, and so it links back once again. Paul continues to use language to really draw back to something he's already said. You know, a lot of times it's when someone says something once and then they kind of go on later and say it in just a little bit different way. But it's the same thought. You know, actually, a lot of times when we, when we preach a sermon, we'll say something 20 times. And actually throughout the sermon, we just may say it a little differently. But it's so that we can continue to grow and continue. And we soak that in. Right. When we continue to, you know, preach that over and over again, it's, it sinks in. and That's what Paul is doing when he links verses back to something he's already Right. So in verse 316, if we're going to go in depth here, he says that he will empower you with inner strength through his Spirit. Paul asked that they would be empowered through the Holy Spirit in their inner man, that, that God would empower them, bold, embolden them to do the work of ministry and things through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this a second ago, the glorious unlimited resources. This is cool. God gives according to to the standard of his riches and glory, not to our standard, right? Because think about this. If God gave us to our standard, we would use God like a genie. God, we need this. You see us. Can you give it to us? And if God gave us everything, it becomes a weird relationship, right? If God continues to pour out everything that you have, some point, you'll quit asking him for things, or you won't be in a love. It'll be conditional. But I'm not saying that God's sitting up there going, okay, I wonder who I'm going to give something to today. Obviously, he's all-knowing. He's got a plan. But God gives according to his will, not according to ours. And this is sometimes, I think, something so hard for Christians to grasp. In our finite minds, we think, well, God, you should just be giving me this, right? You should have healed that person by now. I remember in college, I had a friend who told me, I would would go to him every week and talk to him about Jesus. And he said that he would believe if his grandma was healed. And still another Christian buddy of mine, we would get together and we'd pray. And we'd pray for his grandma who had cancer, never was healed. She passed away. Um, That friend today still doesn't believe in God. But he, he built it on condition, right? It was a misunderstanding of who God is. And understand that that God doesn't work for us, right? That's not, but he loves and he, and, he, and he pours out. But that the blessed hope is the fact that he overcame death. So that one day, every little pain, everything that we have is gone. But sadly, that's just not today. Because we live in a fallen world. As we've been going through the series, um, Did God Really Say? We understand that the world is broken. So he gives according to the standard of his riches from his glory. God gives according to the norm of his wealth, not ours. Verse 317 also links back to previous chapters. God's new temple slash house is being, I don't know why I said slash. Anyway, God's new temple. I just read read it, right? I'm just like, anyway, God's new temple and house is being built according to the house plan as a place for God to dwell. So can someone read two nineteen through 22? It's kind of a little bit of a longer reading.
0: So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through Him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit.
1: Yeah, right? That we are His house, a place for Him to dwell. And I love it that that Paul even says, you um, are also being made part of this, the Gentiles. So this message is to both, right? Which also ties into the fact that Paul always talks about unity. Always unity, right? The Jews, the Gentiles being unified. All being unified under the Godhead, under um, Jesus, right? And so this is it. We are his house, a place for him to dwell. He links back. He's always linking back. And I've wondered, I haven't gone through this yet, I wonder if you go through some of Paul's other letters, if he does the same sort of stuff. I'm going to guess that he probably does. Because if he's writing the same style, He's probably doing the same thing in all in most of his other letters. So 3.17, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Paul asked that Jesus would, would live in these believers, even as Jesus promised in John 14.23. In John 14.23, it says, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. So Paul asked that Jesus... Um, would, would live in these believers. He prayed earnestly that he would live in the believers. John 14, 23 tells us that for all that love him will do what he says, and then my father will then in return love, him, love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. So that when we love God, God promises to love us, and in return also promises to come and fill us with his spirit to dwell in what we call the new temple. There are two Greek words that convey the idea to live in, to make his home in. One has the idea of living in a place as a stranger. And the other idea of settling down in a place to make it a permanent home. Jesus wants to settle down in your heart, not just visit as a stranger. Remember the Old Testament. A lot of times it would talk about God would pour out a spirit upon somebody to do a specific thing, and then the spirit would no longer dwell in them. Or think about it. Samson, for instance, God gave him the strength to knock down the temple when Samson had sinned and, and clearly had done some things wrong, but his spirit dwelled, and his spirit would leave. His spirit would dwell in the temple. Crazy things would happen, right? And so what we're getting is this idea that Now under the new covenant, God's spirit dwells and doesn't leave. His spirit comes into us as believers and doesn't leave. Now we could talk about the once saved, always saved, but like I said, we're not going to get into all this crazy theology tonight. So Jesus wants to settle down in your heart, not just visit as a stranger. We need spiritual strength to let Christ dwell within us because there is something in us that resist the influence of the indwelling Jesus, right? The flesh that Anthony's been talking about, Pastor Anthony's been talking about for the last couple of weeks, tries to resist what the Spirit has come to do, come to make us like Jesus. The enemy wants nothing more than for us to not look like Jesus. But so we have this tension inside of us that um, something can be conquered as the Spirit of God gives us the victory of faith. So when the spirit is dwelling in us, things can be conquered when we just listen and obey what his guidance is. Then he goes on and says, your roots will grow down. There are actually two expressions um, are used, root and rooted. So think about this, like a living tree, which lays, uh, which lays hold upon the soil. It twists itself around the rocks and cannot be upturned. Grounded like a building which um, has been settled as a whole and will never show cracks or flaws in the further, through the failures in the foundation. So he talks about this deep rootedness, right, when we, when we are believers that we would be deep rooted in the things of God. And that that, that roots, because we're deep rooted, that when something would come our way, That the tree just or the roots wouldn't just come up. Right? That 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 deep rootedness would be so found in Jesus, that no matter what the church in Ephesus would face, that their hope would still be found in Jesus. This is that deep-rooted that we get uh, this expression. And then he goes on: as we learn to love one another, uh, right, as they learn to love one another, love for Christ will deepen. No greater call for community right here as they learn to love one another. As Christians learn to love and serve one another, their love and service for Jesus will grow. Any questions so far? Kind of like halfway-ish there. I only got 20 minutes, so we'll see what happens. Okay, verses 18 through 19. Paul's second request is also two part, that this power and presence would empower them to grasp the cosmic scope, that is to ex- um, experientially know the love of the Messiah, that in reality is beyond our full comprehension. Right, with the result that God's own life fills them into all the fullness of God. Right, so this is what these verses are about. That that we that Paul wanted them to to know and he wants us to know the fullness of the love of the Messiah. And yet, Paul understood that none of us can grasp it. It's a love that's unconditional. Human love is so conditional. Whereas God's love, there's nothing that, that people will still, God will always love his people even when they make mistakes, we see that over and over again throughout Scripture, that His love is unconditional. So here we go. Links back to the previous chapters. So three eighteen, if someone would read Ephesians one four through five for me. Even before He made the
0: loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Yeah. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah. And so 18 it says, and may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. I'm going to break all these down here in just a second, but what I want you to understand is Paul is really quoting back to this idea that even before he made the world, God's love is prior to all reality. God always eternally existed, and so his love always was. Think about that. There's something so magnificent about that. God's love always was. He knew you before you were even born, before you were even an idea in your parents' mind. God knew you. Not only did he know you, he loved you. That's a different kind of love. So much greater than, than any love that we could try to draw up. So verse 318 talks about the power to understand. Right? And we, we just talked about this, that we can never fully grasp, but we should long for. Right? That's what Paul is saying, that we should long for the power to understand God's love. Though we'll never get there, it doesn't mean we should quit longing for it. We should yearn for more of his presence. So the love of Jesus has width. I'm going to take you, um, think about a river. You notice how far a river is. I remember as kids, not really rivers, but even in like, you get to like, I can't really call it a river because it's not. Because if you could jump across, it's not a river. Uh, but yeah. Uh, but I remember as kids, we'd always judge. and how, how wide is that? You think I can make it? You know what I mean? How how wide could I really jump? And we, we would test that as kids. And a lot of times, most of our friends and stuff, we wouldn't make it. Um, and then our parents would wonder why we came home soaking wet. But we sure would go for it. I never looked that far as a kid. Now as you get older, you start to understand. You're like, I never make that. Um, but you can see how wide a river is by noticing how much it covers, right? You can start to say, "Oh, okay, that's that's pretty wide." But God's river of love is so wide that it covers over our sin and over every circumstance of our life, so that all things work together for good. And so I think I want you to think about this when you doubt His forgiveness or God's providence, that that He's narrowing. Um, his love is as wide as, as the world. His love transcends all of it. It's so wide, right, from the east to the west. As far as you can imagine, God's love is infinitely more than that. That's how wide. When Paul's talking about the width of his love, he wants people to, to understand that from the, as far as the east is from the west, God's love has transcended that. And then you go to the length. When considering the length of God's love, I want you to ask yourself some questions. When did the love of God start towards me? When when we start to consider the length, and then how long will it continue? When did it start? How long will it continue? And the answers are, right? It's, It's rhetorical questions. It always was, and it always will be. And these truths measure the length of God's love. Jeremiah 31.3 says it best. It says, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This word everlasting, right? It's, it's this length. To be everlasting means to be forever. That's Jeremiah 31.3. And then the height. Ask this question, how high does it lift you? When I was thinking about this, I'm asking the question, how high does it lift you? And the question is simple, right? It, it lifts you to the heavenly places where we are seated with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says it this way, he has he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. That's how high it lifts us. The, the love of God, he stepped into time, died a horrific death, so that one day for those who believe in him would be seated in heaven amongst Jesus, amongst God. That's how high this love lifts, His creation. And then the depth. Philippians 2, 7-8 through 8 says, uh, But made himself with, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, death, Even the death of the cross. as you can't go lower than the death of the cross. Especially in that time. If you died on the cross, it was humiliation. They were trying to humiliate you, to discredit you, to make you as if you were nothing. That was what it was meant to be crucified. That is how deep the love of Jesus is for us that he was willing to take on the sins of the world, past, present, future. He's willing to take the weight of that on the cross. And this is the the love that Paul wants us to understand. God's love is wide enough to include every person. It's long enough to last through all eternity, deep enough to reach the worst sinner, and high enough to take us to heaven. It's the love of God. And then 319 also links back to previous chapters. I'm telling you, it's everything except I think 20 and 21 link back to, to previous chapters. So if somebody would read uh Ephesians 1, 18.
0: I pray that your hearts be flooded with light so you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called. His holy people who are his rich and glorious
1: inheritance. Yeah. 319 says this over here. It says, May you experience the love of Christ. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Once again, he's saying that God's love can't be understood fully, um, but that he wishes that they could understand God's power, God's love for them. So, would somebody read verses 1 Ephesians 1 22 and 23.
0: Church is His body; it is made full and
1: complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with Himself. Yeah, so once again, that we are the new temple filled with His glory. I be filled with His presence. So, verse three, nineteen. In depth, this theme of the fullness of God, this fullness of God, uh, the fullness of God's presence and His love, goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, to Old Testament passages, which Paul, by the way, would have no doubt knew very well. Passages like Isaiah 11, which talk about the whole earth being full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Other passages um, that are found in Numbers and Habakkuk. And then there's this famous one in Psalm 72. Where at the end of the praise of God for all the king is going to do in justice and mercy for the widow and the orphan and the weak and the helpless, the psalmist says this So may God's glory fill the whole earth. May God's glory fill the whole earth. It's this idea of God coming to fill all of creation with his presence, right? And you read in scripture in the Psalms that all of creation groans towards the Lord. All of creation yearns, really, what it's saying, to be in the presence of its creator. So Paul's talking about this idea that all creation, um, um, coming to fill all creation with his presence, with his love, with his knowledge, with his glory, as in Habakkuk 2. See, this is a regular Old Testament theme, and it speaks about the intention of, of God in creation itself. So there's there's really two great themes in the Old Testament. One, simply, here is, is, is simply like this. Here is creation, and God intends to come and fill creation with himself and his own love. Now, this is why it seems God creates something outside of himself, because God is love. Right? So many times people ask, well, why did God even create humanity? No, the only explanation is that God, out of his love and goodness, created something that he could love. Anyway, so this really gets into some crazy thoughts. But one, so that's one, right? Simply here is creation, and God intends to come and fill creation with himself and his own love. Right? And then um, God creates something outside of himself so that he can fill it with his love. But after the exile, when God seems to have disappeared and gone away and left Jerusalem, the place that had been full of his glory, he left it to its own devices. Which means to the destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. But here's the second thing that he promises he will come back and fill his house once again with his glory. All of the Old Testament prophecy talks about the coming of Jesus which is God's way of once again coming back and filling the, the, the earth with his presence. And then when Jesus leaves in the New Testament, then we get this idea that we become the temple. So this notion of God coming to fill people or fill his house with um, his fresh glory, with surpassing knowledge and his fullness is one rooted deeply in the Old Testament. So with all of that, Paul is saying that those who belong to Jesus, those who have him dwelling in their hearts through faith, those who are indwelt by his spirit, they are filled with his fullness in the present so that they may be the sign to the future in which God will fill the whole creation with his love. What this really means, Paul actually spells out in chapters 4, 5, and 6. I'm not going to go there tonight because we're going to go there in a few weeks. So this is kind of really what happens in in Ephesians 14 through 19. And then we get this little extra part um, that theologians call the glorious doxology. And so in verses 20 and 21, here's this overview. There's no linking anymore. There's this like send out, right? It's almost as if Paul actually could wrap up Ephesians right here but he doesn't. He goes on to to do more. But there's this glorious doxology where Paul praises God. I'm just going to read it real quick. He says, Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So there's this glorious doxology that Paul praises God who is powerful um, to do beyond what humans can conceive, right? what we can even think of. And that that power is at work in the Messiah's people. So that power is at work in the people of the church of Ephesus, and that power is still at work in us today, through the church, church meaning the people of God. So in verse 20, it says, All glory to God who is able through his power, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. See, this doxology not only belongs to the prayer that precedes it, but also to every glorious privilege and blessing spoken of in the first three chapters. Paul says that God is able to do above all that we ask or that we think. The we, actually here, the we included Paul and the other apostles, and, um, and they, they certainly knew that Jesus could do great things. So when he talks about this we, he's actually talking about him and the other apostles. Because they would have understood that Jesus could do great things. Right Now, we understand too, as we can kind of gleam that Paul would have actually also been talking about us, because we understand that God can do great things. But to the church of Ephesus, it made more sense that he was writing the we, because it's showing them that you guys know, you guys know what Jesus can do, Right? you guys are, are people who have maybe seen some of the miracles or very closely heard the miracles and so he's talking about this we as the apostles to, to give weight to it. Paul is saying it exceeds measure and description that God can do above uh, can do above and much more than anything we could ever ask of him. that God can heal somebody of cancer that God, can heal somebody of disease, that God can bring people back from the dead, right? To still believe that. As Christians, we should still believe those things. Sensationalists are people who don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit anymore, that God does no longer do miracles, right? And I've always asked the question to a sensationalist, I ask, well, tell me where in Scripture it tells you that the miracles have ceased and they can never point to anything. But it's as if, like, Acts is the end, right? So for sensationalists, when Acts finishes, that's kind of their ending to the miracles of God. And I'm like, okay, then, so you're telling me that God's no longer at work in today's life. But we know that he is. And so as believers, what Paul is saying, that God can do far more than we could ever imagine. That he's still at work today. That he was still at work in the church of Ephesus. And then in verse 21, to him be glory, the glory which fills the temple, glory in the way that God gets stuff done, the glory of God supremely revealed in the love through which Jesus died and because of which Jesus rose. You see, Paul is determined that his people will be a people of praise that we should be a people of praise, to God be the glory. Some of you may have noticed um, on Sunday mornings, we worship team, I've really been burdened with this idea that we should be singing songs more to God and for God than songs that maybe reflect what we get out of our relationship with God. And so um, we've been kind of using you guys as experiment. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But really, we've been, I've been really in my spirit feeling that worship today has has kind of went in a different direction that I don't feel like is a great direction um, because I feel like anytime you read like Paul's doxology says to God be the glory to God be the glory right? and so if you if you pay attention on Sundays we've really shifted some of our songs to to speak that language God to yours is the glory holy 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 is the Lord God almighty right rather than this idea of okay well we're There's a lot of songs that are written that are, I still, are great worship songs. Don't get me wrong. I just think right now what the world needs is to understand who God is. That he is holy. Anyway, that was just extra. I don't know where that came from. So, um, to him be the glory, right? Paul has determined that his people would be a people of praise. And a people who know the story. A people who are beginning to realize this extraordinary truth. Jesus did, in fact, die and rose from the dead. C.S. Lewis said this, that when you're with Christian neighbors, they are the holiest object ever presented to your senses, since in your Christian neighbor, the living Christ truly dwells. And that's powerful. Let me say that one more time. when you are with your Christian neighbor, so when you're with somebody else who believes in God, they are the holiest object you will ever... uh, Object ever presented to your senses, since in your Christian neighbor the living Christ truly dwells. Man, C.S. Lewis Louis uh, obviously blows my mind. So, any questions? This is this is Ephesians. Ephesians—the end of really what Paul is trying to do in these first couple of chapters, and he gives this this glorious doxology to kind of stamp it right in the bow. And then we know that Paul loves to be run on sentences, so he'll go on for another three chapters. (laughs) Uh, Any questions? Any thoughts? Okay, well, at the end, you'll have um, some questions and some thoughts that Kelly brought up. So in your little thing, you should have a couple questions there uh, that you can kind of wrestle with for next week. Actually, not next week. Next week's Encounter Night. So you're going to want to be in encounter tonight. It's going to be amazing. I can say that because I'm a worship pastor, but uh, also because it is is—it's uh, just a time that we can come and worship um, and pray together as a church. Um, and like C.S. Lewis said, it's the closest you'll be to really the heavenly because Christ is dwelling in the believers that are gathered in that room. So uh, man, the features has been great so far, right? I, man I'm I'm loving it I've I've been reading Ephesians differently than I've ever read it before um, so cool that's it that's a wrap so.